0: A better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Be Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always one man's people the changing world the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is uh, May 23rd, 2013. This is episode 1136 of the Survival Podcast. And today we have a guy named Chris Steltzer on with us. It's going to talk about mob grazing and grazing management, uh, paddock shift grazing with cattle. This is a guy that's interned with people like Greg Judy, really knows what he's doing, and... Uh, made his mistakes, and then went out and interned, and now is uh, running his own operation in uh, Colorado. So we're going to talk all about grazing animals and pasture and animal management today at a really uh, a fun but an intellectual level. You'll learn a lot today, a tremendous amount. Before I bring Chris on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Survival Gear Bags, a company that came right out of the TSP community, Kelly John Doe, Um, Back when the show was really, really new, I don't even think it was a year old yet, became a member of our forum community, and he started to do a few group buys because he was in the uh, fulfillment industry and thought, hey, maybe I could actually put together a web store. So he put together survivalgearbags.com and put together a lot of really great equipment available at really great pricing with really great service, and uh, has done a good job ever since. Does a discount for the MSB. He's been doing that for a long time. And I, I uh, brought him on as a sponsor as soon as the spot opened up for him. And I like what he does so much. He also runs the Survival Podcast gear shop. That should tell you how much confidence I have in Kelly. Check it out today, survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original Survival Podcast sponsor. Original because they went first. They were the first people that ever stood up and said, Hey, Jack, I'd like to sponsor the Survival Podcast. My buddy Vic over there. And I said, Dude, I, I don't know I'm ready to take a sponsor yet. Let me figure something out. And we built the entire sponsorship program with the vetting by the uh, listener ad council and the way that things are run off of Safe Castle and they were a good they were a good place to start. We're talking about a company now that's been a sponsor of this show for over four years. There's not a lot of places where you have a podcast that keeps any sponsor for four years. There's not a lot of sponsors that stay with a podcast for four years. We have a really great relationship with Vic. He does his uh, discount uh, Buyer's Club for free to all MSB members, which basically pays for your first uh, year of MSB all by itself. Great place to get everything you can think of for your prepping needs. Check them out today. Best way to remember their website, kind of catchy, prepared.pro. Prepared dot PRO dot com. Best way to visit Survival Gear Bags, Safe Castle Royal, or any of our sponsors, go to the survival podcast.com Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. It will help you deal with uh, any attempt at brand piracy because it is out there. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to our members. You help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, active duty and prior service. If you send me an email with service discount in the subject line and send it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Before, not after you join, before you join, I'll send you a discount code that will save you even more money on your membership in the Survival Podcast members support brigade. I also extend that discount to first responders like EMTs and paramedics and firefighters. Uh, real quick on the uh, membership brigade, I usually just go over it real quick. It's a great deal. You might want to check it out if you haven't done so. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members. Again, you support the show. You get a lot of really great discounts and if you are buying things in the Self Reliance uh, self-sufficiency, uh, homesteader world, all of the stuff from the tactical to the practical, guns to gardening, back and forth. It's a membership that does pay for itself with its discounts many times over. With that wrapped up, it's my good fortune to uh, introduce our special guest again. Chris Stelzer has been uh, working with uh, animals for a long time. He's completed two internships. Uh, one that really caught my ears is that he's actually interned with Greg Judy, who has done some amazing work with, work with mob grazing here in uh, in the United States in the missouri area He's also interned down in uh, uh, South Africa, so he's been kind of globe trotting and really g- gleaned a lot of information from a lot of really great people uh, and he's now put that into practice on his own uh, on his own ranch he's teaching other people about it. He has a great new book out he has a great blog and he has his own podcast uh, which is available. And you can find more information about him at agriculturalinsights.com. You can get all of his info there and hook up with him. And with that, hey, Chris, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, we have you on today to talk about livestock and uh, grazing management. Uh, But I was looking at your past. You've... uh, You've kind of gone the intern route to to gain your knowledge in this space that you're now applying and teaching to others. So you can maybe just fill people in on, you know, wh- how you got to where you are today with what you're doing.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, well, I, I started out uh, grazing management on my own. So, you know, I read the books. Uh, I read some books by Greg Judy. Joel Salatin's books, of course. I read all his books. Um, and I'm like, okay, fine. You know what? I read the books. Uh, I'm ready to do this thing. And so I, I started and, um, I, I found about a hundred acres. I leased that land. I found some livestock that I could custom graze, meaning that I did not own the livestock. I just grazed the, uh, animals for someone else and they paid me a monthly fee. Um, and, and that was it. So I just went after it and, and made it happen. I really didn't understand how to use the equipment. I really didn't understand how to fence the livestock. I didn't understand the water requirements. Um, and to make a long story short, it was a disaster. Um, the landowner kicked me off the land uh because I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh The livestock owner was very upset with me because again, I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, there's, there's a few times where cattle got into a very dangerous situation due to lack of water. Uh, and that was my fault. Again, cattle were getting out due to inadequate fencing because, you know, I just really did not know. So, you know, then my wife and I had a heart to heart and we decided, you know what, hey, if we're going to do this, um, we need some real world experience. And so I went to a school that Greg Judy put on, and I met Greg there and asked about his internship program, and I was accepted in, I think it was January 2011. I was there for five months, and I learned a whole lot from Greg. He's an amazing teacher. Um, and Um But I also made a lot of connections there, and um ultimately I wanted to end up back in Colorado. So after Greg Judy's internship, I went to The James Ranch, and that's a ranch in Durango, Colorado, that does a lot of direct marketing, and it's more in my environment, so I wanted to get some experience in in a brittle environment with grazing. And then finally, I met Ian Mitchell Innes, who is a South African rancher, uh, who lives in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, which is a province in South Africa. Long story short there, I, I ended up getting accepted for an internship there. So my wife and I moved halfway across the world um, and started working for Ian on his ranch. And, and I'm sure a lot of people out there, if they follow grazing or read Acres or the Stockman Grass Farm or something like that, know Ian and know Greg Judy. Um, so I worked on his large ranch. It's about 15,000 acres, and he has thousands of head of cattle. And so now I am back in the States trying to do my own thing and just trying to share as much as I can with everyone else so people don't make the same mistakes that I did.
0: That's awesome, man. I I it's it's cool that you got to work with Greg directly. I uh I'm really a fan of his work and that must have been really an awesome experience overall. Oh uh, yeah. with all that, you've worked now in how many different main climate types then? I I couldn't tell you the climate types. Um, I would say
1: Missouri is a – well, in grazing, first of all, we we define climate types not in zones as the USDA does. I know that's a very useful tool, but we define it as brittle to non-brittle, and there's a 1 to 10 scale basically. So I would say Missouri is non-brittle because they receive – adequate rainfall if land is left alone it will success into a forest so that gives you an idea of what i'm kind of working with when i was there and then i went to the very opposite end of that scale to a very brittle environment of southeastern or southwestern colorado which is close to new mexico and arizona just extremely dry uh but they use irrigation so
0: that's uh, called the four corners region or something like that yeah
1: four corners area um And that's, I mean, I live on the front range of Colorado and that Four Corners area is steps above dryness, um, than my area. So it's, it's much drier. And then in Africa, um, South Africa, the, the rancher that I worked for, Ian compared it to Texas. So that can kind of give you,
0: uh, an idea. But those are three very distinctive environments. Sure. Yeah. And I imagine there's things that are unique to each, but there's also probably things that are universal across all of them. Yeah, there are. So, so let's dig into it then. As as we look at grazing, I mean, it's all about in some ways the grass. Yeah, that's that's what these animals are grazing on. So, there's something called the one third rule. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Well, when you're when you're grazing, I just want to preface this discussion with this: when you're grazing. And you're managing livestock's grazing behavior. Um, we're working within nature and nature is chaotic. So I really don't want to sell. I don't want to feel like people are being sold short when I say that there are no formulas for grazing management. But one of the, one of the rules, quote unquote, that I think is important and that kind of breaks that rule is the one third rule. And the one-third rule is you want to try and limit your livestock's grazing behavior uh, to biting the top one-third of the plants, okay? And if you've ever watched livestock be turned into a new paddock, you'll notice that they just graze the tips of the, of the plants, and then they move on. Now, it's only when they're forced to eat lower down on those plants that they will do so. Okay, and so the reason that they like those tips is because there's more hydrogen in the tips of the grass plants and that, and the reason there's more hydrogen is because of the process of photosynthesis. Now, when a grass plant takes in, um, CO2 and CO2, uh, through its pores called stomata, when the sunlight hits that plant, there's a chemical reaction that takes place and between the water and the carbon dioxide that the plant takes in through its stomata, um, the chemical reaction that takes place, basically oxygen is released for us to breathe and hydrogen is what's left over within that plant. So hydrogen is energy and the rumen in those grazing animals actually functions best when there's a proper uh, hydrogen to protein ratio, or energy to protein ratio. So just if any of you out there listening have livestock, really pay attention to where they graze when they're given that selection. So your goal is to ultimately always have them graze that top one-third, which will, which will give you an, a, a lot of benefits. But the main benefit being improved animal health. Um, if you're milking, they'll milk more. If you're raising beef, They'll they'll put on more weight.
0: Well, how does that, you know, kind of jive too? with I remember one of Greg's presentations when he was talking about how some people look at grass and go, you've let that grass get too high. You've mm-hmm. let it get seed head. And he said the only purpose that thing has in the world is to produce seed. That's that's his entire life is based on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, you know, my philosophy on that has changed a little bit from when I went to go work with Ian in in South Africa and when grass plants are in uh, a state where they're putting up a seed head, they're actually stressed. And so my my new philosophy here is let's graze grass that is not fully mature, that is not quite fully mature, but is not young and immature. So that the only concern that grass plant has is producing leaf. And And what do leaves do for the grass plant?
0: They feed the root system.
1: Yeah. And they collect solar energy. So if we know that hydrogen is what gives these animals the most energy, wouldn't it make sense to maximize the amount of available leaf that these livestock have to graze? Because when plants get to a fully mature state, they're not necessarily using that solar energy that's falling on them as efficiently. However, there are times when I do think it's beneficial for livestock to eat seed heads. Um, so, you know, take my recommendations um, and then make your own observations about what happens. Because even Ian in South Africa, he grazes seed heads and that's essentially like a grain for cattle and they do very well on them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that since you're trying to model natural systems, there's time when when grazing animals on plains are grazing grass in that mid-stage, and there's times when they're grazing grass in that that stage where uh, there's grain head on it. But it also stands to reason that we shouldn't be grazing very immature grass, because give those animals their choice, and like you say, they'll they'll go for the taller grass. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly.
1: So... There's a lot of people out there and myself, I'm guilty of this at times too, that, that make these blanket recommendations of, well, you should let your grass get to this height or this height gives this much weight gain per day. Well, it's exactly like you said, Jack. It depends. It's going to vary throughout the year. So don't stress out about it.
0: Yeah. And it's also, you know, what do you have? <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah, there's sure. some of that into it too, right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, um, when we, we look at that, we end up at some point having to make a decision that it's time to move our animals and we, you know, go into what, what's known as paddock shift. How do we make that determination?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, like I said, the, the formula system, I'm not an advocate for. Um, a general rule of thumb that I like to use that people out there can use is this fast growth. Meaning your grass plants are growing fast, fast moves. Okay? And slow growth, slow moves. So during the spring when that grass is coming up and it's, and it's fairly young and immature, hopefully you have some leftover residual brown grass to balance the diet of the animal. Because if, if you turn animals out onto just lush green grass pasture and that's it, they will have the squirts. And and Mm. that is not a good sign. Too much protein. Too much protein. Exactly. And so there is a, there is a way to combat that. If that's the situation that you're in, move them faster or give them a large selection of grasses. Okay. Do not confine them and force them to eat the grass plants very low, or you're going to end up with uh, some unhappy animals. Now on the other side of that is during the dormant season or the winter, um, you can graze stockpiled forages, stockpiled grass, and generally in the wintertime, you want to move slower because there's almost no growth happening. So the, the balance of the diet, the excess in protein isn't that big of a concern.
0: Got you. Yeah. Makes sense.
1: And, and I just want to note, um, when someone tells you that you should shift your animals every 10 days or every seven days, um, that should send a red
0: flag off. Uh, you're the one. How do they know? They don't live where I do. They don't manage my animals. They don't know how many animals I have, how much land I'm working, what my climate type is. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So I I'm in Northern Colorado on the front range and I have friends down in Southeastern Colorado and they're almost two completely different environments.
0: Mm. So, It It, it makes me think of the people that used to call you back when people still used regular phones and say, We know we can save you money on your phone bill. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How do you know? I don't, do you know what I spent last month? No? Okay. Goodbye. Sure. But as we're, as we're doing this, we have to look at two sides of things, right? Monitoring the the land's health. Mm -hmm. We also have to monitor the, the health of the livestock themselves. So what are some ways we can, Judge, if we're doing a good job based on the way our animals are performing. Exactly. Um,
1: I think monitoring for animal performance, in my opinion, is the most important thing. Um, and monitoring for animal performance sounds like it may be technical and it sounds very analytical as if, you know, I'm some big time feedlot operator or rancher, and that is not the case. Monitoring for animal performance is basically making sure that your animals are happy and healthy, okay? That's the hippie version, I guess, if you want to put it. <laughs> um, but my my version is monitoring for animal performance. So um, there's three very, very simple techniques and a fourth one that's even easier. The first technique for monitoring for animal performance is gut fill. And basically... I want you guys and gals out there to imagine you are riding a cow like a horse. Okay. Now, don't actually go do this, but imagine you're riding it like a horse. You want to look on the left side, just in front of the hooks they're sometimes called of the animal. So, if you take your left, um, if you take your left hand and push into your the side of your abdomen, abdomen. I'm sorry. I can't pronounce that word. Your abdomen. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> um, If you push in to the side underneath your ribs, but above your hip bone, that's essentially the same place you want to look for gut fill on your cattle. If that area is imploded, meaning you could like set a bowl in there, that means you've severely limited the amount of forage or feed that your livestock are getting. Now, if that's if that area is nice and flush or bulging, then you've done a fantastic job. But there's more to it than that, and so that leads me into the next step for monitoring animal animal performance, and that is urine pH. We want to measure the pH of the urine because that tells us exactly what's happening inside of a cow. Um, it actually tells you what the pH of the rumen is inside the cow and depending on what the pH of the rumen is inside of a cow that can determine a lot of different things okay so the way to monitor for urine pH first of all is to go out and just sit there and wait for one of your one of your cows to pee
0: and and, you don't have to wait too long sooner or later one of them is going to do it yeah exactly
1: (laughs) exactly Um, and so After that, you you get some pH testing strips. I'm sure most of us have used these in high school chemistry or something. You can buy them online. It's just a roll of pH paper, and and there's a little guide on there to tell you what each color means uh, to the corresponding pH value. So you go out there, right where the cow pees, you go down to that piece of land, and then you get a sample from a piece of grass or a piece of... Hay or something laying on the ground. You don't want to actually get a sample from the soil uh, because that will throw the pH off. Okay. And so once you do that, I mean, for a rancher, it's best if you can get three different samples from three different animals. Okay. Um, but you know, if you only have two cows, go monitor both of their their pHs. And what you're looking for is a pH of seven, a neutral pH. And a neutral pH is, is best because that means that there's a proper ratio of bacteria within the rumen. Now there's, there's basically two different types of bacteria in the rumen. One that digests uh, grass and forage and one that digests and thrives by having a more high protein environment. So it goes back to the one third rule. Now, if, if, if you are doing your grazing management properly, using the one-third rule, and you're monitoring for gut fill and you're monitoring for urine pH, your pH should be seven. Now, if your pH is eight or nine, that means the animals have ha- have gotten too much protein. So that should be a light bulb for you to make a management decision to fix that to fix that problem. So. If the pH is 8 or 9, you you have a few choices. You could feed some loose hay that's low in protein, just some straight grass hay that's dry. That will dilute the protein content of the grass that the livestock are currently eating. Or you can move your animals more quickly, giving them more tips and more hydrogen, which is more energy.
0: Is there... You know, a point at which uh, a herd owner really needs to look at his herd during certain climatic conditions and say, you know what? I bet too many in the mob here. The lamb won't support it. I need to call some animals now.
1: Yeah. And that's a very complicated decision to make. Um, That goes into planning for grazing and experience is the best teacher. But yeah. Wh- my my advice to people always starting out doing this is to go slowly and build up from there. Okay. Because, because it's really easy to get really excited like I did and <laughs> start this grazing management stuff and do high density grazing and mob grazing and you can run into an absolute train wreck and depending on your environment if you overgraze your land it could be an absolute disaster to a to a setback. Hmm. So if you overgraze your land in a brittle environment like where I am in Colorado, with very erratic rainfall, if we don't get any rain this spring and summer, um, and you overgraze your land last year, you're done. You're you're not going to do any 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 sort of grazing whatsoever. However, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, the Midwest, where you get predictable, steady rainfall, um, the solution for managing overgrazing is to remove the animals from the land. And due to the moisture that you guys regularly get um the land will begin to success, and it will start probably with weeds and grasses and stuff like that and and if left, we'll go to brush and eventually forest,
0: yeah, and it'll come back pretty quick in a place like you know the the wet areas of Oregon and Washington versus um, an area even like I have, I get a hell of a lot more rainfall than you, but you can do a lot of damage to this landscape really quickly if you're not careful. Sure, yeah. And I've it's I've pretty fragile that. really.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that through your videos. It's more it's more fragile like you said than I thought it would be.
0: Yeah. There's places if you go just twenty miles in any direction that it's it's not as fragile as this area is. This is kind of a challenge. Um part of it is the deepness of the soil. The soil's actually pretty good, but somewhat alkaline. But, you know, you go a foot down and you're sitting on limestone. Oh. And, and that only allows so much of the perennial grass roots to, to get down into those deeper levels. And that's, that's the challenging thing. And that's what makes it almost dust sitting on rock if you're not careful. Mm hmm. Sure. So we're, we're taking it slow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Real slow. Definitely. We're just, that's where we're going. Our grazers are geese. Um, you know, we only have eight of those. And if you need to call one of them, it's called Christmas. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we, we're, we're going to monitor urine. We're also going to monitor manure. I mean, the, the you've seen cattle. I mean, most people that have seen cattle take a dump and were really disgusted by it. You've already explained what that <laughs> usually is, right? It's yeah. usually too much new grass. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, so monitoring manure, or it, it's very easy yeah. to do. All you got to okay. do is go out there and look. Um, it, it's very simple. So what you, when you go out into your pasture, you're looking for a manure that is relatively, I would say maybe one or two inches, probably two inches high. And then it has a nice depression in the middle of it, uh, or a little pond even. And if it rains, it'll hold a little bit of water. Uh, and so that's the perfect manure path that you're looking for. It should also have the consistency of pumpkin pie. And you can find that out by smearing it with your boot, uh, or your finger if you're feeling brave. <laughs> um, and manure that is runny will obviously have no height to it. It will be spread across a larger area. Uh, but then on the same hand, uh, or on the other hand, you can have manure that is too fibrous and consequently means too much roughage. And, and that happens frequently in the wintertime. So if the manure pile is piling up really high, you know, like six or eight inches high, that means your animals need more energy or you can try feeding them a little bit less hay. And the cheapest way to supplement with more energy during the wintertime is to feed stockpiled grass because you grew that or using free solar energy, essentially. Um, but there's other ways to supplement for uh, more energy or hydrogen. Um, molasses is, is a good one. You can, uh, water down some molasses and put it in a sprayer and spray it on some hay, which will give the hay a higher energy content.
0: That's a pretty simple solution. I, I think a lot of times the, 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 solutions are really simple when they're effective.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the better you get at all this stuff, Jack, the more that you hone your management skills, the, the less you'd have to spend on inputs and the happier and healthier both you and your animals are going to be. Um, I'm reluctant to say, well, you know, going into the winter, you should have uh all stockpiled grass. You shouldn't have to feed hay. And then coming out into the spring, you shouldn't have to feed hay either because there'll be some residual uh brown grass to balance out the rumen. Um, and that's sort of the end goal. But sometimes people are starting from feeding hay for five months out of the year or six months out of the year and so they need to take those small steps in order to make that progress
0: in other words get the land get the land up to a point where it's capable of doing that exactly um i, I but the other side I, I often hear from people is you, you we have to do it there's no choice but hey you don't understand my climate or whatever mm-hmm. and i think that it's important that we try to send a message to people, especially people that are already ranching, that in almost all cases, it is eventually possible. Yeah,
1: it's possible to not feed hay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's certainly possible to not feed hay three months out of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's you know. And could you talk a little bit about well, because the big objection is, hey, I got a foot of snow on the ground. I got two foot of snow on the ground for a month, two months at a time.
1: Yeah. Well. That just depends, again, on the situation. Um, One or two feet of snow for me in Colorado is not a big deal because in Colorado during the wintertime, the sun comes out and it's it's beautiful. It could be 50 degrees in the wintertime and a lot of that snow will melt. Um, So livestock can graze through snow. There's a lot of debate out there as to how much can they graze through. Well, if they get hungry, they can probably graze through (laughs) quite a
0: bit of snow. I always looked at it this way, dude. Okay, so I'm like, can you get through that snow? And the guy's like, well, sure, I could get to the bottom of that snow. Okay, the cow weighs a thousand pounds. Yeah. And he wants the, or she wants the, 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 the stuff that's at the bottom more than you do. If you can get down there, what makes you think a thousand or pound or bigger animal can't pull it off? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, that that's true. However,. The upper Midwest and
1: the Pacific Northwest, I know from experience, um, I have friends that ranch there, are very challenging places to not feed hay. Um, and and if you've been there, uh, you know, like Minnesota, for example, they get snow and then it melts and then it forms an ice crust and then they get more snow and then it melts. So I'm not sure because I don't have that experience to say whether or not cattle could graze through that much grass or that much snow in that
0: situation. And that is tough. And I, will acknowledge that straight up. I just think that it's important because actually the people that I hear it the most from that say that they can't do it are in Colorado. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, as I hear it all the time from people that that, that graze the animals in Colorado so we have to, it's cold, there's snow. You don't understand. It doesn't rain, what have you. And, and it's something you're doing. Yeah, no, you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to feed hay. But, um, but we're also saying you might have to in certain, yeah. as you're, as you're developing this, and you, I guess you don't always get it right either. No, you
1: don't. <laughs> uh, you use your power of observation and your management decisions to do the best possible thing at the, at the time and, and go from there. Um, some solutions that other farmers, ranchers come up with is to, uh, windrow hay and then pull it up into piles. I'm not a fan of that because, I don't like inputs. Um, but going back to the point I was making about Minnesota and the upper Midwest, we're, we're humans and we, we generally live in one location. Uh, we're domesticated and so we expect our livestock to do the same. And 99% of the time, that's fine. But in reality, I think what it would have happened in nature before, uh, civilization got to this point is that the grazing animals were probably not in the upper midwest during the winter time. They were probably
0: it's, down south. They just moved. I mean that's that's the thing that we've lost and you know people talk about the the loss of the buffalo and they you know they blame the hunters and all and there was definitely a consorted effort and it had to do with starving out the native americans but the, to me the real thing that made it where they couldn't come back was barbed wire for sure. I, that's that's the big enemy of the buffalo is is the invention of barbed bar wire because we we shut down the migration capabilities and today with the highways and everything else it would be almost impossible to bring them back to the way that they were because we couldn't allow the fifty million animals migrating the way they used to of
1: course and you know that's that's some things that environmentalists like to say uh, will they like to criticize ranchers or or farmers, um, and oftentimes for good reason, but, you know, we don't live in those times anymore, so we need to understand that, you know, maybe if you do live in Minnesota, you need to take that into consideration. You need to weigh uh, the fact that you probably are going to need to feed hay for uh, probably four or five months out of the year, Um, and you need to make a decision based on many factors whether or not that's the best thing for you.
0: I would say I completely agree with that. Um, kind of getting back into things, because we had an aside there, um, with all these animals, we have to have some way to, to manage them physically, right?
1: Yeah. And and that's a good segue into this, the, the barbed wire comments. <clears throat> um, physical livestock management now in 2013 is awesome. Uh, we have great fencing solutions that really make it, uh, that really put the power back in our hands uh, to make the grazing management decisions for the livestock. So one of the ways that we do that is by using portable electric fencing. And that is poly braid or poly wire, which is essentially like a, a poly substance woven with metal wire that is conductive of electricity. And, and it's really flexible. It's like a rope. You can tie knots with it. Um, So that's a fantastic resource. Excuse me. The next thing that we use are portable step-in posts, and these are just plastic posts that you step into your ground and put the poly wire through, and then you can just put up a fence anywhere you want. And this is for cattle mostly, uh what I'm referring to here. And then there's electric fence chargers that can either run off of your wall outlet or – can be powered by solar panels and a battery type system, uh, which I have experience with as well. Um, and and all these solutions work, uh, either the plug-in or the, the solar powered battery option. But really, Polybraid and the step-in posts give you such an incredible amount of management that previously, before these these tools were invented, was literally not possible. Um, so that's the kind of power that we have. So there's no excuses anymore for people to say, well, I don't really know how to manage my livestock. Um, for those of you on small acreages, which I know most of your audience is using this, using poly braid and a reel and step in post is just so easy and fast. Um, and I've even used, uh, poly braid on the large ranch that I worked at in South Africa, and that was 15,000 acres okay oh, wow. and we ran miles of fence using poly braid or poly wire
0: because we we're talking about this and and from your experience of managing a sizable herd everything you're saying can apply to the person with a small homestead 10 acres 20 acres mm-hmm. running 5 head of cattle.
1: exactly yeah every everything that i've talked about can apply to them this is this is not for commercial ranchers only um the principles are the same no matter what so uh, and and oftentimes actually the management decisions and tools and techniques that we use on smaller acreages uh have a more profound impact um because i'm assuming you know if you're out there and you have 20 acres you want to manage that 20 acres as as intensively and efficiently as possible and and using these physical livestock management tools Uh, The portable electric fencing gives you the power to do that.
0: Yeah, and we're using that, obviously, to control where the animals are and and to move them from place to place. So there's a lot of terminology that's thrown around today with grazing management styles, mob grazing, high-density grazing, holistic grazing. What are your thoughts on those different phrase pra, phraseology is it yeah, is sure. there's definite differences are they're all the same i mean
1: you know it all comes down to the the opinion of the person talking about the grazing management style now in my new in my new ebook and on my website i feel that i want it i want to define each one of those so we're clear about what we're talking about uh and mob grazing is probably the most famous type of grazing management out there right now. But in my opinion, all mob grazing really refers to is that all the different classes of livestock are grouped into one herd or one mob. Um, you can be a mob grazer, although this is not common, but you can be a mob grazer and not be doing high density grazing. Okay. So if, if there was a thousand acres, let's say I had, and I had two pastures. So I had two pastures of 500 acres, but I had all my classes of animals in that 500 acres and they could just do whatever they want. That would be a mob of cattle. Okay. So, but, but I want to, I want to note that most times when someone's talking about mob grazing or says mob grazing, they are referring to high density grazing as well. Okay. So that's just a fine line. Um, And and high-density grazing is just that. It's grazing at high densities. So you're confining your livestock to smaller grazing areas for a specific purpose. And and we'll get into what that is a little bit later, but it's to put litter onto the ground and to cover the soil. That's the main motivation for high-density grazing. Because as we learned earlier, it's actually best and ideal to give livestock the ultimate selection of grasses.
0: And so, and not leave the, gra- the ground barren in, in, in the wake of the mob. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Protect that soil. Yeah. And holistic uh,
1: planned grazing or holistic management is a very intricate process. Um, it was developed by Alan Savory, and holistic management is actually a framework for making decisions, it's not actually a grazing model. However, within the holistic management framework, Alan Savory has done an absolutely fantastic job about planning grazing and and many other things that deal with grazing in that. Uh, But just to give you an example, you know, you could be a school teacher from South Dakota and use holistic management to plan your life and to make decisions without having any livestock. So um, holistic plan grazing is a plan process There's a, there's a grazing chart which lists all the days in the entire year and livestock producers, ranchers plan out where their livestock are going to be on each and every day through that year. And so that, so that gives them a roadmap or a guide to serve as, okay, this is where the livestock are going to be on January 15th. Well, on March 30th they need to be here because we need to brand the new calves. So it's a visual representation of the grazing behavior of the cattle or or any livestock that they're going to have throughout the year. Um and it's and that is also a very intricate process, but let's keep it back and relevant to your audience which is on a smaller acreage. What you could do is just, you know, say okay, I've got 20 acres. Let's break up those 20 acres into 10 paddocks. So each paddock is two acres. Now you can, you can probably plan out and write down on a sheet, um, how many days you'd like your livestock to spend in each paddock, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, hopefully that's a little bit of a more clear definition for, for some of these different grazing styles.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Um, with the holistic management, there still has to be some adjusting on the fly to that. Mm -hmm. I I would think that the original plan would be like the original battle plan, but sometimes it doesn't survive contact with the enemy. Yeah. Uh, So there's still a flexibility there to make adjustments, but you have kind of the, if everything goes the way it's supposed to, this is the model and then we'll tweak the model as we go down the road. Right. Exactly. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that point up because I missed that.
1: Um, Yes. When people do a grazing chart or plan their grazing out, it's very uh, labor intensive. You need to sit down at a table with a pen and a paper and think and with a calculator and do all these calculations. I mean, you're essentially planning out your whole year. And so people oftentimes feel that since they've invest- invested that time and invested emotionally in this planning process, that they need to stick to the plan. Well, well, what happens if it doesn't rain for three months? Is the plan still relevant? What happens if, uh, there's a fire on your property? What happens if you get in a car accident and you can't walk for three weeks? You know, so during this planning process, if you do do a grazing chart, realize that the power of observation and those techniques for monitoring for animal performance should always outweigh the plan
0: yeah absolutely there's there's that it's that constant as you were talking about earlier observation and feedback for sure And, and as we talk about that then you know we've talked about the health of the animal the other health system that we have to manage that's just as important is the health of the land itself right exactly yeah so again um
1: as you guys can probably tell i'm not too i'm not a big fan of formulas uh, so there are some more formulaic and formal ways to monitor land health out there. I'm just not a proponent of that. Um, I like to observe and, and use my brain to figure out what's going on and, and read what the land and the animals are telling me. Uh But one of the greatest things that we can do to monitor for land health is by monitoring for litter. And you guys might refer to litter in the permaculture world as mulch, but litter is different than mulch. Litter is a layer of dead organic material. In this case, uh, when it comes to grazing, it's grass that has been knocked down on the ground by grazing livestock. And and we can change that ratio of how much grass gets knocked down to how much forage is actually eaten with, with um, density, with how, how dense our livestock are grazing. So what your goal is for litter is to place about one to two inches of litter on the ground in a pasture. Now, what this allows, this allows the new grass plants to come up and start growing. Because, Jack, as you know, when you mulch a garden, one of the main motivations is to, to suppress weeds, right? Absolutely. And, and it's also to conserve moisture. Um And and we're doing the same thing with litter as well. Okay. So one to two inches, one to two inches of litter is best. It allows the new grass plants to come up, conserves soil moisture, but it also feeds all the soil microbes and all the soil critters that live in the soil. A lot of these soil critters eat the exact same thing as a cow eats. Worms are a perfect example. They need, uh, they need that dead grass material to eat. They pull it down into their burrows and they eat it. And then they give us these wonderful worm castings, which have a fantastic um, mineral content and they are a neutral pH of seven. So they're actually balancing soil pH. So it's important to feed all those little critters. Um, now there is an important distinction to make between different types of litter. We have green litter, which is Grass that is green and growing that you knock onto the ground and green litter is primarily broken down, uh, in a bacterial manner. Okay. So if, if you only knock down green litter, your soil is going to become dominated by bacteria mostly. The ratio between fungi, fungi and bacteria will be off. On the other hand, brown litter or dead uh fully mature, you know, standing yellow grass or brown grass that is knocked down onto the ground is broken down in a fungal environment. Okay. So when you're knocking down litter, it's important to try and do this in like a one-to-one ratio. So there can be a good balance of bacteria and a good balance of fungi in your soil. But the main thing you're trying to do with litter is just keep that soil soil surface covered. That's it in a nutshell.
0: So keep the cup, keep it covered and keep all the little creatures fed. Mm -hmm. Um, on that note, you were mentioning worms. Uh, I think if you do this right, worms will come. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's like, like the, you know, build it and they will come manage it. And the worms will appear. Yeah. During my internship with Greg Judy, I mean, he
1: has so many worms on his, all his farms. It's, uh, mind boggling. Uh, I don't remember, I think he has a story where he he picked up a manure pat with a shovel and put it in a wheelbarrow and um, counted all the worms in it. And it was something like 200 plus worms in, in one manure pile. Oh, wow. So worms uh, really um, are very beneficial. Uh, they actually secrete calcium carbonate through their castings, and that is what a lot of conventionally minded farmers put down on their fields to try and bring the pH of their soil to a neutral level. So instead of wasting money on on these inputs, uh, knock down a little bit of litter with your grazing. You'll feed the worms. They'll reproduce. And consequently, it, it will in-
0: lead to an increase, uh increased land health. Yeah, I, I can't remember what video it was. I remember watching one video with Bill Mollison where he was visiting with a rancher somewhere in Australia, and the guy was talking about how basically as he's moving to new land, he actually takes particles of dirt with, you know, like a, like a clump and basically moves a piece of sod there to help establish the worms on this land ranch that he was recovering. And they had done an estimate, and they had determined that the land that they had, you know, already recovered was inhabited by in somewhere in the range of 50 billion worms and his comment and it always sounds cool when they use the Australian accent was if you can get 50 billion of anything working for you you will be doing okay
1: (laughs) (laughs) even if they're worms for sure yeah. yeah that I mean that's absolutely amazing um you know there's a lot of really cool statistics out there with how many tons of worm castings are produced per acre with a
0: certain number of worms i don't know
1: any of those but it's staggering
0: it it would be expensive to buy oh yeah I mean, that's i mean cuz we're always talking about bringing in amendments and things like that when we're doing intensive you know land cultivation like gardening and things like that because you can mm-hmm. um but you can't afford to fertilize with inputs 40 acres it it's cost prohibitive yeah But in this case, nature's doing the job for you. Mm -hmm. And it
1: it really comes down to management. Hopefully that's what people are starting to understand with this whole thing. Um, Oftentimes, management can replace money. Um, A friend of mine, Walt Davis, who's an old-time rancher in Oklahoma, uh, wrote a good book, and and he talks about that, how management can replace money. And I think that's a a good motto to, to live by. And the New Zealanders actually... Um, have a saying, look for the when – when they encounter a problem, look for the first – the first solution should be to look for the no-cost option.
0: You know what? Thank you so much for saying, Walt Davis. Almost a year ago, I was listening to Howard Garrett, and he had him on. And I was driving, and it was one of those things that I completely forgot about. Mm-hmm. And I have never been able to remember who that was. As soon as you said the name – I threw it in Google and the book is how to not go broke ranching. That's the guy. So I've been trying to figure out who that guy was for a year. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks, man. No no problem. I'm glad I could help. It was, it was in a brain cell. It was just (laughs) jammed up behind, you know, something like, you know, where I put my keys yesterday or something. Sure. Yeah. So with the land, then we have to give it time to recover as well.
1: Yes. Recovery periods. Um, this is a topic of heated debate. Okay. Let me just say that. Um, and oftentimes people make arguments for recovery periods for good reasons, and it also depends on your goals. So my recovery period here in Colorado is going to be dramatically different from your recovery period in Texas, and yours is going to be very different from someone in Florida. Um, so I like to say just go back to – well, first of all, assess what your goals are. If your goals are to establish a robust and healthy perennial grassland system, you probably want to increase your recovery periods a little bit longer because some of those perennial grasses take a longer time to get established. Now, on the other hand, if you're of the mentality that I am, where I want to maximize the amount of solar energy falling on the property and convert that solar energy into high-quality uh beef or dairy or something like that, then you might want to shorten your recovery periods using that one third rule and just grazing the tips and moving along. And so recovery period is such a complex uh topic to tackle uh that I could write a book on it, but let's use a few different scenarios. Let's say with the first scenario, I graze the top one third of the grass plants, okay? Well, consequently, there's two-thirds of that grass plant still remaining above ground. The, that two-thirds, that leftover two-thirds can still collect an abundance of solar and energy. So the grass plant is going to grow faster because it can use energy from the sun falling on its leaves to start growing again. Whereas the other, on the other hand, if you graze the grass plant very low – to almost nothing and there's no residual leaf left that grass plant is going to have to use its root reserve energy to put up new leaf so you could have the same piece of land the same exact climatic conditions but under different grazing management practices have a totally different recovery period so um, a good a good rule of thumb is to just go and re grass that is not really immature, but also not fully mature. That's That would be my recommendation. And I'm sorry that I can't give you uh, a day, a week, or a month time frame period because it honestly just depends.
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I, I really have a hard time with hard fixed numbers on things like this because we kind of talked about this already. I, yeah. How do you know? You don't live where I do. You don't know. I mean, there's, there's always a, an adjustment to be made based on the observation. So that makes perfect sense. Um, uh, but another thing we have to look at then is if we're going to try to deal with the fact that we're going to have droughts. And I think that when people say, well, I just hope there isn't a drought, we'll keep on wishing, right? There's, yeah. there's almost a drought every year. It's just a matter of what part of the year gets less rain than you expected mm-hmm. and how severe it was. So there's always, you know, people just say, "Well, the climate's erratic." Yeah, it is in some ways, and I think that we've done some things with desertification to to cause that and all. But I also think it's more like, "Well, the climate's erratic," not not like like it's like this is a new thing. Um, the climate is nowhere near as stable as we'd like to believe in our world of microwave ovens and remote controls, and we have to expect that. So, how do we go about determining uh, like a reserve? that we can use during those periods of time that we're going to have these, these low water periods.
1: Yeah, you, that's a fantastic example that you gave and a point that should be, uh, listened to again, probably. Um, like I said earlier, we work within nature. Nature is chaotic. This is not a test tube. This is not an, an experiment plot. This is the real world. Um, so droughts are actually normal. Um, Irregular weather is the norm. I I would just go with that as it has a good rule of thumb. Um, Now, dry spells and droughts to me are two different things. I think almost all drought is man-made. And if you've looked at the drought monitor map recently of the United States, you'll notice that southeastern Colorado is the worst area in the United States right now, basically. And if you drive through southeastern Colorado, you'll see a lot of terrible farming and ranching practices, which consequently led to bare soil. So there's a lot of bare soil. There's a lot of heat over that uh huge region of land. So it's going to be a heck of a lot harder for moisture to fall and be effective on that land and break the drought. So what you can do Obviously, what's very important is to keep litter on the ground. We've already established that. Keep the soil covered, cool, and moist. Now, with drought reserves, um, it's going to tie right in to the animal performance and the one-third rule. See, this, it's, it should hopefully be coming full circle. And if I don't explain it well enough, Jack, just remind me and I'll try and reemphasize the point here, but creating a drought reserve There's basically two ways to create a drought reserve, okay? There's the conventional way and the way, the new way that I learned from Ian in South Africa. The conventional drought reserve is, okay, I've got a 1,000 acres. I'm going to set aside 200 of that acres this year, and I'm not going to graze it at all. That's a conventional drought reserve. Well, my problem with that is now you're not utilizing the solar energy falling on that 200 acres during the growing season to the best of your ability. And utilizing that to the best of your ability would mean creating an an alternative drought reserve that I'm going to describe here for you. And it's going to be keep on grazing using the one-third rule, because then you have two-thirds left of that grass plant. You have a two-third drought reserve.
0: Yeah, let me let me hold you there just a second, because here's my problem with the way people do that. Okay, great, you've done that. We have a drought, a serious drought in your area. Now what you have is a standing field of really tall, really dry, really dead grass. Yeah. That's what you have. Extr- and <laughs> the, the animals haven't been in there, conditioning the soil, manuring the soil, taking a piss... All the things that they do that actually help maintain the land has not occurred. So that area, while it has a lot of basically standing, almost standing hay or straw at this point, Mm -hmm. is also probably, it could be, depending on the, the land type, climate type, and the drought length, it could actually be worse than the land you've been grazing. And, God help you, if somebody drops a match on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen grass fires here burn a telephone pole in half. Wow. I mean, it looked like God took a blowtorch and blew a hole through the pole, and the it only hit one pole, and the two poles in the next length of the span were holding half the pole suspended in the air where it burned it in half. Wow.
1: Yeah. I mean, I so
0: you, that's something we have to think about too is are we creating a, a you know, a massive brush fire hazard if we're not careful? Sure. And, and one of the things that Ian dealt with
1: in South Africa was people would come onto his land and just drop a match and that's it, you know? Whew. Sayonara. And so he. Mean people did this vandalism. Oh, yeah. 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 Um,. So he, he goes through great pain and goes to great lengths to burn fire breaks on his property, which is 15,000 acres. So you can imagine that is no small, no small feat to accomplish. No.
0: No, definitely, but it's easier to put a fire break in before a fire than during one. Yeah, that's oh, for <laughs> sure. that's something we find out every year when we we end up trying to cut fire breaks in active burning fire zones. Yeah, so so that's your thought there on, on drought reserves is just stick stick with the one third rule. Um, is there is there have you gotten into any way any of the land sculpting co- components of permaculture? where if we can hold enough water in the land, we we have a completely different kind of reserve. We have a water reserve. You know, I
1: that is something I haven't gotten into too much that I, I definitely want to learn more about because I think that would just be fantastic. And these two things could obviously complement each other.
0: They're one and the same. And you might have a hard time putting in a lot of uh, ponds, anything that would actually hold water due to the water rights crap and everything you deal with in in, in Colorado. Sure. But the beauty of a swale is it's not an impoundment. Mm-hmm. It doesn't hold water, it controls water. It basically stops it and puts it into the ground. And to be frank, most of the government weenies that go around and do, you know, are counterproductive toward environmentalism and think they're helping the environment don't know what a swale is. It's a ditch, they don't get it. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems to me like even in the, and it would be actually hard to hold a lot of small ponds in a climate. You guys probably get what 10, 12 inches a year. Yeah, around that. It, that might be hard to even sustain those ponds anyway. But if you started forming your paddocks in with swelling, um, the, the, the effect, you know, cause you're going to, you're not, oh, you can only hold so much of that water even with good land management. A lot of that's going to run off. But if you could push that into the land, imagine just, the net effect of of, instead of getting 12 inches a year, it's like getting 24 and what that would mean for a piece of land in, in Northwest Colorado.
1: Oh, it's for sure. It's huge.
0: It's huge. And I think it could be done. I mean, it's a, I, it's something I would, like if you said, would you come up there and do it? I'd be like, no, but I, (laughs) I think there are people that I would look to as a consultant on how to do that. Um, that are familiar with the landscape profiles and that environment, um, that could do it, and actually i don 't know how afraid of it I would be, honestly, because if you do it right and you follow contour all you 're really doing is making a ditch, and it 's something you could easily test you know you could you could put one in and do start seeping water into you know one acre of land, and you would know at the end of the first year if the effect was there because it 's dramatic when you do it right it's it's immediately obvious yeah, yeah even and and these are generally done with forested systems but i don 't see why they can't be used in in pastoral systems as well,
1: and I think you're exactly right that there needs to be more research uh, done on that and more testing done. but one of the challenges that we face as ranchers that I face trying to help people is there there's a lot of uh, pushback on onto these new ideas I mean I have a extremely difficult time trying to tell people about why they should maybe divide their ranch up into even 10 pastures. We'll say, why would I want to even do that? You know? Mm -hmm. So, um, but I think you're right. The swaling could definitely be a huge benefit. And, and you mentioned doubling basically the amount of effective rainfall. Essentially by grazing, using the one third rule, you can even quadruple, or increase the amount of forage you grow, excuse me, up to over a period of time by up to 10 times. And that's because when you're grazing using the one-third rule, it's essentially like you're pruning the grass plant like a rose, so it becomes more bushy, so there's more leaf. That means it collects more solar energy, which means there's more hydrogen or energy for the grazing animals to eat.
0: See, and then if you take that, right, and you add that, management style to something like land sculpting then you get into what we're calling stacking function oh, yeah. and now we're stacking the functions and if we stack the functions right then we begin to stack time into the system and, and that's where this stuff gets really exciting and I think what's cool is as far as things have come even the people like like you yourself and, and with grazing and myself with with some of the things I'm doing we're only at the beginning there's so much to be done yet I think it's exciting and the main reason I'm bringing that up now Is there's young people listening to this show, and you know, I want them to be excited about this type of thing because I think that that's that's because it's that group that you and I are going to eventually, no matter how hard we try, we're going to get set in our ways, we're going to find what really works, and we're going to stop pushing the envelope on it. Yeah. It's that next generation, you know, we push the envelope enough in in the kfos and conventional agriculture it's time to start pushing it into the the world of sustainability and you know cows eating grass which is what they're supposed to eat it's it's really weird it's like almost like a cow is designed to eat fibrous material instead of corn and soy it it's it's really strange that that's how it is but it seems to be that way and the more we can do to farm grass the more cattle we can produce and 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 we could do that without all of these inputs, and then, you know, on, on top of that, we can also stop what basically I consider just to be brutal cruelty in our animal production systems.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's a great point that you bring up. Um, I know that we're not going to have all the answers, but at least we're moving in the right direction.
0: I think the big thing is an understanding that it, that it can be done. That's that's yeah. what I keep trying to bring people back to. Now, you said something really Interesting to me earlier, you had some problem with cattle with water on your first abysmal of failure. Yeah, um, it was it was there was just no water around, or was the water in the wrong state? No, the water that's that's very important um,
1: important subject to bring up. The water was terrible quality, uh, and a cow's body is roughly I don't know sixty percent or more water. So it would make sense that if they're made comprised up of that much water that we should focus first on water. And so when uh, when I first started grazing, I didn't know anything. And I'm like, fine, it, you know, these are cattle. It doesn't matter what kind of water they'll You know, they'll drink any water,
0: whatever. If a dog can live on toilet water, you know, the cow can live on freaking this ditch or whatever. Yeah,
1: so I was like, whatever. <laughs> so I had a really old, huge steel stock tank. And the water came out of a well, uh, a windmill pump well, actually. So mm. not only would I not have a water source that the wind didn't blow, <laughs> but the water quality, because it was sitting there for so long, uh, stagnant, the water quality was not good. And so one of the easiest things that you can do is observe your livestock and, and just understand how they're drinking out of the water tank. If they're sniffing the water and licking at it and they're not, they don't have their mouth kind of in the water taking big deep gulps, that should, that should be a red flag for you. That means that they do not like the water quality. They don't like how it smells and they don't like how it tastes. Now, the good thing is I know what that problem is now. There's anaerobic bacteria or anaerobes in stagnant water and basically anaerobes thrive in an environment that is depleted of oxygen. So the easy solution is to just aerate the water supply of your livestock's uh, drinking water. Okay. Now you could do that physically. You could do that by physically disturbing uh, the water, you know, with like some type of windmill and paddle system to oxygenate the water. Um, but there's actually a way you can do it with um, pool cleaning tabs, hypochlorite, uh you can you can find those almost anywhere there're those little tabs that are about the size of a nickel uh that just compressed powder tab and they're they're used for um cleaning pools and whatnot but actually, if you put those tabs into water there's a chemical reaction that happens you're not actually sanitizing the water with chlorine okay um you the chemical reaction that happens. Is that, uh, oxygen is released into the water when it's introduced into, into the water. So essentially, you're oxygenating the water with that hypochlorite tab. And an easy way people can do that is to just get an old plastic water bottle, cut, cut some small holes in it, put a few rocks in there, put a few tabs of hypochlorite in there, uh, put the lid on the bottle, and then get a string, and tie it to another bottle that will float on the surface, and uh, the hypochlorite can circulate and keep your your water supply oxygenated.
0: And when you're talking about that kind of thing, how much water are you talking about there? Then I mean, this isn't <clears throat> this okay. isn't a Texas stock tank that's a half acre pond. You're talking about doing that with? You're talking about yeah, with a yeah. stock
1: tank. So you can just put a, a tab or two in the
0: gate in the Gatorade bottle or plastic bottle. Okay, and you're talking about that for like an eight foot round, two foot deep steel tank is sure, what you're talking sure. about. Okay.
1: Yeah. Or or even, you know, you could put one tab or half tab in a hundred uh, gallon tank.
0: Okay. Just trying to get kind of the ratios <clears throat> to, to water size there. Yeah. I mean yeah. that's
1: such a huge issue when you're keeping livestock is making sure try and make sure that you would drink the water. That's the ideal yeah. situation.
0: I can tell you that we had an old one foot deep steel stock tank, probably something that holds in the, the neighborhood of fifty gallons on the property that we bought and it was just kind of laying off and it was something we didn't get to yet. And we had Max, our German shepherd get pretty sick. And right after I, he got sick and he was throwing up and he came through it just fine. But I found that tank to be full of disgusting water. And I'm pretty sure it's cause he was drinking it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, you know I mean, it, I, I like what you're saying there. If you wouldn't drink it, you know, not to say you should be out there drinking out of your stock tank every day, but if you really wouldn't drink it, gun to your head, I'm not drinking that stuff. Your cattle probably shouldn't be living on it either. Exactly. Yeah, and I, and I mean, it just comes down to doing
1: what's best for the animals. So there you go. That's a really simple, easy, affordable tip that can make that can make a huge difference in
0: the the health of your animals. And I think the health of the animals is important. So do, do supplements play any kind of role in that? Yeah, you know, supplements are
1: important. Um, I'm not a huge fan of inputs, but. Uh, cattle and sheep and goats do need to have access to salt. Uh, and salt um actually regulates the osmotic pressure inside of cells, including our own body. So there needs to be the proper ratio of, of salt in the bloodstream and in the other cells of livestock. So an easy way to feed salt is to get non-iodated salt, so salt without iodine and just feed loose salt free choice. So that could be as simple as getting a a shallow little bucket or pan. If you have a few sheep or a few cows, put that salt out there for them and they will self-feed and self-regulate the amount of salt that they need. Um yep. it's it's really that easy. Anything else? Yeah, um this is uh feeding free choice minerals. This is an option for people that are more concerned with livestock production as a, as a form of income to provide, you know, a living for themselves. So, um, I would not recommend that, that small lives, small scale livestock people go out and start feeding free choice minerals. However, feeding free choice minerals are incredibly powerful because, uh, cattle actually Cattle, sheep, and goats actually have the ability to regulate and understand which minerals they need in their system, and so uh, it's fed free-choice minerals are fed cafeteria style, meaning there's a, a compartment for sodium, there's a compartment for potassium chloride, there's a compart- compartment for whatever else it is, cobalt. Okay, there's a there's a compartment for zinc, and um, that allows the animal to self-regulate um, what minerals they're taking in. And I could go into the health aspects, uh, but there's been some really interesting studies done on even just a, a, a lack of minerals in the diet of livestock can have some really profound effects on their, on their health.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, when you say that, one of the things that springs to mind for me is that maybe even the small producer, if they're really concerned about their land, might want to look at supplemental minerals. And this free choice thing, I'm going to go deeper with you here in just a second because this is new to me. Mm-hmm. But the reasoning for that, if you look at some of the biggest problems we have with re- restoring land balance, is that there's been so much damage done, the soil's been deeply demineralized. And we can only do so much with deep mineral miners like Comfrey's and, and docks that, that pull the minerals up from the subsoil. Um, and putting those minerals through the cattle, of course, the cows don't use all of the minerals. Everything that an animal eats on some level is eaten in surplus, and that surplus is then returned uh, through urine and through manure. Mm-hmm. And as we push those minerals through the cattle, we actually begin a process of remineralizing the soil, which is growing the grass for the next herd that comes through. So to me, there's a tremendous opportunity there with just about any animal that you're pasturing to put supplemental minerals through them as, if nothing else, an effective means of restoring the balance of the land itself. Exactly,
1: yeah, and I'm I'm really glad you brought up that point. Um, Just so people know, anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of the mineral that the livestock ingest will come out the backside, okay? And people look at that as, well, they're not utilizing all of it. Well, that's just the physiology of the animal. Um, So – but yeah, you are remineralizing your soil and your land, and you are correct. There's a limit to how much we can do with certain species of plants to pull up those minerals and enhance the mineral cycle. So the benefits are twofold. Your livestock's health will dramatically improve. Their fertility will improve. They'll probably gain more weight or give you more milk. The quality of that meat and milk will also be much higher.
0: So, And they're going to retain a lot of those minerals in their bones. And if you're, if you're growing animals for your own personal use, doing your own butchering and slaughter, what have you, if you're throwing bones away, you're making a huge mistake. Bone stock is one of the... Most mineral-rich things we can put into our body. So if you're if you're taking that animal through a full cycle on a small acreage, then making broth from those bones of that animal that's been mineralized, that's been feeding on the remineralized soil, then you're improving your own health. And I think that there's this. You talked about holistic earlier being a time management thing, but there's also a, a resource management component here uh, that needs to be looked at holistically. What 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 what's going to happen to that cow after it's slaughtered? Where's it going to go? How's it going to be used? And what is it taking with it? And can that somehow be eventually returned? And, and if you close the loop in as many places as you can, we start to get the, the system running the way that it was intended before we kind of screwed it up.
1: For sure. Yeah. And in an interesting observation I made out in South Africa, uh, was there was a herd that we weren't feeding free choice minerals to. And this herd would find the bones of cattle that had died from years past or, any of the other local grazing animals that had died, and they would, they would chew on those bones or suck on them <laughs> to get the minerals. Then we went over to the other herd that was being fed free-choice minerals, and you never saw them do that. And, and I spent a lot of time observing both herds, so I know that that is the case.
0: When you see any animal eating something that's strange for that animal, th- that's exactly what's always happening. If you have a dog that starts eating compost, he's not getting certain nutrients and, and, and he needs them. And, and that's what, you know, dogs will eat weird stuff and all, but when you actually see dogs start to eat, like, I mean, well-composted compost, and I've seen that, and that's almost always some sort of mineral deficiency. So it's, it's constant across different animal types.
1: Yeah, uh, I want to um, point something out real quick for people. A, an excess in minerals in a certain mineral is worse than a deficiency.
0: That, okay. That's
1: why I recommended that you buy salt that is free of iodine. Because an excess is worse than a deficiency, hence why we also prefer to to feed free choice minerals. Now, there's a lot of ranchers or farmers out there, people raising livestock that might get someone to come out to their farm or ranch, do a consultation for them, do testing on the soil and do testing on the actual forages for mineral contents, and then make recommendations about uh, a mineral to feed um and most of these minerals are pre-mixed so there is no free choice well Mm. that that for me that's not okay because there's too many variables involved from you running two tests to determine what the actual mineral content is on this piece of land
0: yeah and certain minerals begat other minerals or make minerals that are there but hard to detect become mm-hmm. bioavailable so it's not as it's not as cut and dry but the animal knows what it needs yeah exactly right and i mean this is what i've tried to explain to people too like especially if you're a hunter now, have you ever been in the woods you're standing there in a deer stand here comes a deer running along you're about to shoot it it eats something and falls over and dies right it, 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 that doesn't happen they, there's poisonous crap everywhere but that deer knows don't eat that you can not eat that and they know what they need, and their diet will vary in a natural system based on not just what's available, but if plenty's available, what they need at a time. And this is a very interesting thing. I, I pulled that term up on Google while you were talking about it. I found one place, and they have a sixteen mineral program. So they have all these different minerals, and like you were saying, they're provided individually so that the cattle can just pick and choose when they feel they need something. I think that's, I think that's really really interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, that's Mark Bader's company. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he runs free choice enterprises. That's it. Yeah. Um, and there's some debate out there about this, but livestock, uh, wild animals, including livestock, they're so intelligent in many ways that we can't even begin to understand what it is. Um, there's been some theories that there's different magnetic fields that a cow can sense with her nose. And different minerals have different magnetic fields. So um, there, there's still a lot to be learned.
0: Well, I, I think the way you'd prove it is you just set it out there in 20 different scenarios. And if the cattle in 20 different scenarios choose 20 different ratios, then, you know, I don't think cows are that smart uh, that, that they could, you know, just like as a conspiracy, get together and go, we're going to jack with them yeah. <laughs> and we're all going to do different. Right. If they if they're all doing it different, they're making a decision. Based on something, and I think that would be a pretty easy proof point. There, um, we are going long, so let's kind of wrap some things up. What sure. are some advanced techniques that that maybe are being worked with or discovered now? Okay, so they're advanced techniques.
1: This is this is going to be great for people that wanna that are excited about this stuff and want to start now. Now, high density grazing, just going out there and doing it. I don't necessarily me- recommend you just start right away. You could run into a train wreck. However, what you can start doing is you can do an inclusion zone and an inclusion zone is just a very small area that you would make with your poly braid or poly wire. You put your livestock in there overnight. They do not need any water and you put them in there packed at high densities and then you take them out and let them resume their grazing behavior as normal. You can take a few pictures, take some mental notes, but just note what happens when you increase the livestock density dramatically and then you can make decisions further down the road to see if that's right for you.
0: So they're only in the, the, the high-density situation overnight.
1: Yeah, or, I mean, it doesn't have to be overnight. You could do it for two hours.
0: You could do it for okay. four hours. But, but you're basically free-ranging and occasionally containing into a specific area.
1: Well, not, not free-ranging. Let's say you're, okay. you're, you have your livestock in a 10-acre paddock. Okay. Maybe you can find them into a half-acre inclusion zone overnight and then let them go back into that 10-acre paddock.
0: Okay. So we're doing a typical paddock shift, but now we're going to take that paddock shift down to an inclusion zone for a period and go back to a paddock shift. Yeah, exactly. Okay.
1: And then, That's completely
0: um, new to me. I've never heard of anything like that. Yeah,
1: well, that's just a way of validating to yourself and other people that this is what I did. Does it work or not? Make some observations and then you know form your own conclusion to prove to yourself that this works or doesn't work because there's a lot of people out there that say none of this stuff works. Well, it's hard for me to convince you. So what I'm saying to you is go out and try it for yourself.
0: Yeah. Let's say you did that four times over a a half a year. And at the end of that four times, if you uh, did it in four different places, you have 40 acres and there's these four half acre, really lush green areas. Well, that's, and they just happen to be where you did it. That's that's kind of telling you something, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And What about raw milk? Is there work being
1: done with that? Yeah, there's people applying raw milk to pastures. Um, I've done some research. I've talked to some people that are doing this. You dilute the raw milk at a ratio of two gallons per acre. That is your goal. Okay. Okay? And then you can go out there with a boomless sprayer or any method you want to use and basically apply the raw milk to the pastures Um and there'll be a huge boost in fertility because a lot of the microbes that are found in raw milk are also found in the soil.
0: Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. And actually, um, that's not a lot either. I, I, I knew they were doing some work with it, but I didn't realize two gallons to an acre. Yeah. That's it. That's, so you're probably dumping, you're probably putting that to quite a, a significant amount of water to get that spread, but that's, that's, uh, That's not a lot out. That's not a lot the land is asking for in return for what I've been hearing that it does. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And um, the just on a side note, the saliva of cattle actually have uh, microbes in them and they're the same microbes that are in the soil as well. So there's there's such a symbiotic relationship between the land and the animals that it's kind of really cool to think about.
0: So if we don't strip the, uh, the soil down too low and we grade with your one third rule, as the cattle go through, they're leaving behind all of this stuff in the, on the tips of the, the graze that they've just grazed on. And some of it's getting trampled as litter to the ground and inoculating the soil with the same microbes that the soil needs. Exactly. Yeah. Gee, nature knows what she's doing. What a shock. Um, she does. That's actually, that's actually sounds so simple that I think a lot of people will maybe hear that and glass over it and not get how, how actually amazing that little fact right there really is. Uh huh. It is, isn't it? <laughs> and the same person that'll gloss over that will be then trying to inoculate their soil with with you know uh, different uh, inoculants to improve its health. Sure. And and cows can do it all by themselves. And then in your notes you have something called silvo pasture. What is silvo pasture? Yeah,
1: silvo pasture. Um, silvo pasture. Uh, many people refer to it as a savanna. And the savanna, as we know, is just trees, um, spaced out in a, in a grassland. Uh, you know, people think of Africa when they, when they think of a savanna. A silvo pasture is different. It's actually, um, edible trees that you plant within your pasture that the livestock can make use of. And, and it also can provide shade. Um, but it just includes, uh, in, increases the diversity of the pasture sward. Increases the canopy levels that you're harvesting solar energy at, um, provides a, a great protein source for livestock. I mean, the benefits are just tremendous. Um, there's a lot of work. Going on with, uh, silvopasture right now.
0: People, They're doing a lot with, uh, Lucena and Moringa in, in Africa. What are, is, is, there certain tree species maybe that, you know, we have a lot more of a temperate climate than a lot of these subtropic areas where those trees do well. Certain trees that work well for this? Um, yes. The Lucena, which you mentioned, which
1: is yeah. more akin to tropical environments. Uh, Chinese Empress and, okay. and, uh, I think it's either Honey Locust or Black Locust.
0: I think they both work. Yeah. But
1: the key—they
0: probably like the honey locusts better. The pods of those are sweet as hell. Yeah, but the key
1: is you don't let the trees get overly mature. You let them okay. get to about the height of six feet, and then the livestock will actually push the trees down and bend them to, in order to get at all the leaves.
0: Okay. So so they'll they'll coppice it for you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and you, but then you would probably then want to. Control how long they get to do that, so that they don't totally destroy the the tree stand. Exactly, and that just comes down to grazing management
1: again, and that's something that you'll need to to figure out.
0: That's really freaking cool. Mm-hmm. So why why coppice your trees if your cattle will do it for you? Convert it to manure, put it to the ground, whole nine yards. There you that's, go. That's some pretty cool stuff. Now, a lot of the people that listen to the show, they're not just on a smaller acreage; they're on small properties. They're they're running three acres like me or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really not an ideal cattle property even for a couple cows. Um, but we have other options with sheep and goats and you've mentioned those a few times. So are there anything that's particular to them that's easier, harder, special considerations. You know,
1: sheep and goats, um,
0: are smaller than cows. So oftentimes people with
1: smaller acreages think that they'll be a good fit. Uh, Many times they will, but that's not always the case. Um, here in Colorado, a lot of people destroy their land because they get sheep and goats on their small little land plots. And the reason for that is because sheep and goats have different forage requirements than cattle. Um, goats especially need a lot of brush or trees, about 60% of their diet actually. And then that other 40% will come from weeds and grass. And sheep have a similar ratio. It's not as high. But sheep need um, forbs or weeds and brush and grass. So my argument might be look at your your situation, look at your forage base that you have on your land, and then make a decision about what type of livestock you're going to get based on those recommendations I just made. So many people here in Colorado, since we have grass mainly, would be better off getting like some miniature cattle or something like that, or maybe a single steer.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And if you if you're looking at a, a lawn that's, you know, plantain and chicory and dock and clover and it's got that huge kind of a polyculture mixed in with the grass, then maybe you're in more of a situation that does make sense for sense for sheep and goats. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So just uh, you know, take those things into consideration. And uh that's sort of my last point is um is observation, just remember, go out and observe your animals and try and draw some conclusions to your observations.
0: I think one last thing I'd like to put in, too, with the smaller land is one thing the small landowner can do when they're growing, let's say they have a ram and two ewes and they're raising sheeps for lamb every year. Um, they have a much easier time swallowing the pill of bringing in feed uh, when it's necessary. And they're still going to do pretty well on their dollar per pound production for personal use. Where when the rancher starts heading down that path, he starts going broke. So there is a balance there with a smaller landholder being able to pull off racing some of, the, excuse the dog, excuse, no, raise no, no some problem. of their own meat. Um, that's our new dog, Charlie. Um, but, uh, pull that off. Whereas, as a, as a rancher, really, I mean, I've read a couple different articles in Acres USA by different folks doing what you're doing, and most of them say when you start feeding hay, right, um, it, it, this is where your your profit just begins to go away.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's a really good point, Jack. And uh, smaller animals like sheep, uh, sheep and goats are more efficient at utilizing the forage that they do eat, so that's another consideration to take to uh, another point rather to take into consideration.
0: Well, cool, man. Now, you have a website with all kinds of stuff on it, like this. You've got some books out. Uh, tell folks about that.
1: Yeah. Um, you can find me at agriculturalinsights.com. And uh, I just wrote my second ebook. My first ebook is free. You just sign up for my email list, and then the book will be emailed to you, and you can download it. Um, and my new ebook coming out, which covers a lot of the stuff that we talked about here today in more detail is called The Grazing Book, and there will be information on how to buy that if you want to on my website. Great. Well,
0: thanks a lot, Chris. I really appreciate you being here with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you. It was an honor to be on here.
0: And, with and folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Chris Stelzer, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Can't pay Nobody up there cares